Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What could be Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome back, yes, back, to Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast. It's the podcast in which I, your humble host and guide, Daryl Edge, take you, dear listener, on the journey to true Cage Nirvana. And what is true Cage Nirvana, I hear you ask? Well, if you ain't sure, because it's been a while, let me remind you... It's only the journey to the tippity top of the Golden Hog Mountain itself. It's the most sensual, emotional, spiritual, physical, geographical, emotional, sexual journey possible in podcast form. And how is it achieved? Well, there's only one way to do it. We've got to watch every single film. Nicholas Cage, the greatest actor of all time, the man I call the Golden Hog of Hollywood, has ever made. How are you? It's been a while, it's been a few months, um, you know, we were caught up, and now it's the new year, I hope you've had a, a bloody lovely holidays, and a good Christmas, and a good new year, and all that business, whatever it is that you celebrate, uh, and now we're back, and out of nowhere, it's January 2023, a new this Cage film has dropped out of nowhere, it's his first ever traditional western movie, and we're here to talk all ruddy things the old way. Uh, so this week on the podcast, I am joined by the returning Josh Bell. You may remember he helped me cover Trespass way back in um, what feels like the day, like 12 years in cage time. Um, but we get down to the nitty gritty. We get, uh, we're saddling up, we're putting our cowboy hats on, we're looking out into that sunset, we're squinting, we're chewing tobacco, spitting it all over yonder, and we're covering all the ground. The Wild West, the dusty Wild West has to offer. Uh, in this one, we're discussing a you know, a fantastic performance from Ryan Kira Armstrong. We're discussing some um, a bit of our confusion with the ending in the beginning of the film. Our joy of the character Eustace and his lovely exposition explaining ways. And of course, Nicholas Cage's handlebar mustache. Um, also, a thank you to... Josh Bell for pointing me in the direction of um, a screener to get sort of access to this early. And um, ultimately, thank you on behalf of Rogers and Co and um, Saban Films, who's uh, helped hook me up with a screener to get early access to this one as well. Dropping this episode now, it's been out for, at time of recording, just over a week in the US. Uh, just dropped a few nights ago in the UK and is now available on video on demand so go and support this one i did enjoy um have a good to really good time with this one um so you know and you gotta keep supporting your boy cage and um you know obviously in this episode something i really should note a lot more often is that this episode will contain spoilers there are plenty of spoilerific details that are delved into as we go into the old way and if you want to uh, show your support for the episode and you've enjoyed it you can 
check out all the links in the description down below. Um, give it a rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all that good business. It helps the podcast grow, helps more people who may be cage-inclined find it. And there's always room on the journey to true cage nirvana. But with that said, let's get into it. It's the old way. Daryl Edge, Josh Bell. Enjoy. Duh. It is 2023, and we are bringing in the new year with a new Cage movie. In his first ever traditional Western, Cage plays Colton Briggs, a gunslinger-turned-family man who must take up arms when the son of a man he murdered years ago arrives to take revenge. Now, returning on the journey to True Cage Nirvana this week to see if the old way is the new thing or just old cowboy hat is writer, film and TV critic, and podcast host, Josh Bell. Josh, uh, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm happy to be here again to talk about a Nicolas Cage movie. This is exciting. I know. it's. Um, I think it was Trespass the last time we, we spoke. Yeah, that was not uh, the, the high point of the Cage <laughs> filmography there, although... I'm sure you endured worse over your time, but it was definitely not the best work of his. I mean, at this stage, I've literally endured everything. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I say that with nothing but respect to the, to the man I uh, dubbed the golden hog of Hollywood. Um, of so it's it's been a while. It's been 12 years in Cage filmography time, uh, you know, since we've been reunited here. Um, and I suppose it, it's the new year. Old way aside, um, have you been keeping up with Cage um, to this point? Um, not not to the level that you have, I think. But of course, as I'm sure you've talked about many times, he's having this amazing resurgence. And so I certainly have seen all of these major acclaimed popular films. I saw The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. I saw Pig um, before that. I guess maybe this was before we talked about Trespass, that things like Mandy and Color Out of Space had come out. But Definitely have kept up with all that great stuff, and I'm looking forward to Renfield. That trailer looked like a lot of fun. So I definitely have enjoyed those Cage performances that seemingly everyone has enjoyed, and I know this has been um, maybe positioned as the return to B-movie Cage, but I kind of like this one too. I was talking about this on another podcast. Um, We'd been talking about all the Cage that was coming up, and uh obviously this year i think is going to be uh renfield is going to be the big one for cage this is going to be obviously cinema wide um and then for i think most of us um to say this as unpretentiously as possible in the no big air quotes um we're aware of the old way and then it got to like the end of december and then a trailer dropped out of nowhere and i was like this trailer's been out for a week and no one told me. Um, I, th- I think it may have been slightly swallowed up by some some B movie fair called Avatar: The Way of Water. But you know, if you prefer uh, those blue cat people smiling at leaves and stuff, and uh, not your cowboy stuff, then you know, you do you. That's that's absolutely fair. Um, but this one was announced actually like about a year and a half ago, back in September two thousand and one. Was this one that you'd been aware of prior to it dropping, or? Like, like me for yourself, did it just come in drips and drabs and like, oh my God, Cowboy Cage? Yeah, I think I don't 
pay as close attention to Cage, obviously, as you do. But I think I was somewhat aware. I think I was probably more aware of Butcher's Crossing, which is the other Western that he made. And that one seems to be on the more prestigious level that it played at some film festivals. And so I read about it there. And I think maybe when reading about that, there were mentions of, oh, and he made this other Western too. But I think I didn't know a ton about it until getting probably a press release about the upcoming release of the film and then putting that on my list of things to potentially review, to potentially write about. And when it came to figuring out this month and it's January, so it's always very slow for movie releases, I thought I'm going to give this Cage movie a shot. I might as well try to write about that one. So, But it, it, it was probably not long before I had to make those plans that I learned of the fact that it was definitely being released. Yeah. Just kind of, um, again, just dropped a little bit out of nowhere. Obviously at this point, Butcher's Crossing, I think it was the, was the Toronto International Film Festival. It's had its debut there. Yeah. Then it's gone a little bit quiet. So I don't know if anyone's picked it up yet, but you know, some of us, I just see it just sat twiddling our fingers. Um, some of us even went to the effort of reading the book. Um, wow. I know, I know. And obviously for, for Josh's benefit only, I'm flanked by a, a, a bookshelf behind me, a bookcase full of unfinished books because I am an absolute monster when it comes to reading. Um, although I will say Butcher's Crossing, fantastic book. But I think obviously the big story for me sort of here though is that, you know, where, well, what, 40, 45 years um, into the career of Cage and now like the proverbial bus, two Westerns come along at once um, they they say he'd done it all. No, he had not. And I suppose he's done neo-noir westerns with Red Rock West before, um, the sci-fi western with Prisoners of the Ghostland. Uh, and now we've got this, uh, I guess, traditional western. I mean, I'll put my hands, but I'm not too au fait with the western. Um, I've seen... The, um, the Man With No Name trilogy, and that's probably about as far as my knowledge into Westerns go. Do you do you dabble in the old Wild West much? Yeah, a little more than that. Um, I, I maybe wouldn't call myself an expert, but I've certainly seen a decent share of Westerns, classics like The Searchers and Unforgiven and Rio Bravo and things like that. And I, I enjoy B-movie Westerns kind of from, from the, the 40s and 50s when they were churning them out at a ridiculous pace or whatever. And, and I think that was kind of what I liked about this one is that it, it is a throwback to the, that kind of stuff in a lot of ways. I feel like when we get Westerns now, they're almost all revisionist Westerns in some way, or they're combined with another genre like Prisoners of the Ghostland, like you said, that's got this weird sci-fi fantasy element to it. But this was just as straightforward as it gets. It could have been picked up from the era of John Wayne and Gary Cooper or whatever back in the 40s and 50s, other than, I don't know, maybe where where there are a few swear words or some some violence that's a little more intense. But even that was really minor. So I, I, I feel like that's what a lot of reviews have been not keen on like this is so predictable it's so familiar and that's true but i feel like it was a a sort of comfortingly familiar kind of film yeah i think i you know i I scanned a few reviews and i think one of the criticisms seems to be that um 
the predictability of the movie. And I, I think, yes, like it is kind of waving a giant flag from the get-go to say, you know how it's going to end. But I think the thing with predictability, especially, I guess, when it comes to like a bare bones, straightforward Western like this, is predictability isn't a necessarily a bad thing if it makes sense for the story. Um, and for this, I don't think, you know, and obviously but we'll get into it as we always do, but I don't think there was really going to be a uh, a scenario where Colton Briggs, Cage's character, goes back to his store and um, he's stuck, restocking his jelly beans um, yeah. on this one. Yeah, probably not. And there's, uh, I think you're right. It's like, it works for the story and you don't want to see a movie that's unpredictable, but you get to some crazy thing happening and it throws you out of the movie. It makes no sense. It doesn't follow from what's come before. So I agree. I, I feel like this movie takes you where you expect it to go, but in a in an effective way. And when you're within that structure of something familiar and predictable, you're focused on the performances and on the characters and on the execution of the action and things like that. And I thought all of that was pretty solid here. Yeah, I've been able to watch it um, uh, twice now, mostly because I have the... Uh, the a sieve brain, the brain of a fish, and I forget <laughs> details. And my notes are basically, <laughs> they might as well have just given me the script. Uh, my notes are a bit too too hefty. But for me, I think definitely on a second viewing, I think this did grow on me a lot more. And I think my opinion of this, if I'd come into this with one viewing, would have been different to what it is now. Admittedly, the first time I watched it, I was... I kind of felt like it dragged a little bit in some areas and it felt long for 90 minutes. And I guess stage in my life where I see a 90 minute film and I'm like, Oh boy, here we go. Uh, what a treat. What a treat for the old D man. Um, and then I was watching it and he got to like, I don't know, 40, 45 minutes. And I kind of thought, Oh, this is kind of, this is kind of dragging its heels a little bit here. But then on the second viewing, I was like, well, actually, you know what? This actually works a lot better than I first gave it credit for um, and was able to pick up on a few more things in a second viewing as well. Um, I think one of the things that sort of, um, I suppose I was expecting from the trailer because the trailer was a bit more, seemed a bit more action heavy. And I suppose you can't talk about, you know, the trailer and the start of this film really without discussing, uh, arguably one of the most important things we'll discuss all day, handlebar mustache cage. <laughs> um, now, to my knowledge, I believe this is the first time he's had a handlebar mustache in cinema. So, if nothing else, we've seen history uh, <laughs> in the old way today. And I feel I've got to ask because this is the way my brain works. Um, the film sort of opening at that um, sort of hangman setting in the, the twenty years prior to the events, handlebar mustache cage. He sort of slumped up against a pillar. Um, what's your thoughts and feelings when you see him rocking this absolute um, beast of a stash? I was worried that he would have it for the whole movie because as 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 entertaining as it is to see him with that, it is a very poor fake mustache, you, you have to say. <laughs> and it was amusing yeah. to see that at first, but 
I, I didn't necessarily know at the beginning that that was going to be this 20 years earlier flashback. They don't do anything to make him look younger, except put that mustache on him, which really just makes him look older. Um, so I thought this is not a good sign that this bushy fake mustache is showing up here right away. So I thought it was just the right amount of that because you get it in that flashback and it's kind of amusing to see him in it. And then it goes away and it's not distracting anymore. So perfect amount of mustache. <laughs> I think it's one of the greatest mustache reviews I think will ever be committed <laughs> to audio. Um, yeah, I think a sinister trickster part of me wanted him just to have that all movie, but I realize it would have been very, very distracting. So I think just the right amount of stash. Um, I think I agree with what you say, though. Obviously, I know, you know, with smaller budget films, obviously there's limitations to so much that they can do, but um, considering it's set you know, 20 years prior at the start of the first five or so minutes. Um, there isn't that much else that they do to make him look much younger. Um, one of the things that sort of did make me laugh is skipping forward a bit where he meets uh, Marshall Jarrett for the first time. And obviously they sort of know each other. And uh, Marshall Jarrett's like, I'm a, I'm not sure we've ever met before. And he goes, I know who you are. And Jarrett steps forward and says, Oh, Briggs. He just takes two steps forward and like, he was the mustache. I think right. you, were, you, you were missing there. Um, as if he's not immediately recognizable as Nicolas Cage. Come on. <laughs> well, every, everyone else in the town is obviously aware of the legacy of Briggs. The four bandits are aware of Briggs and then the marshals are aware of Briggs. And then I'm sure the cattle in the hills are aware of Briggs as well. It, because one one of the th- things, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly touch upon this more. One of my issues with the dialogue in this and sort of the writing is that, um, y- you know, I suppose with the Clint Eastwood school of thought, I know he sort of goes into scripts and just strips a lot of stuff away and takes the whole, why take 500 words to say something if you can do it with five? And I think there's a lot of areas where this film does uh, more telling than showing so again, you get a lot of characters, and I think Eustace, one of the goons, the, the old man henchman, is, is very, very guilty of this, of just being the guy who gives exposition and re-explains things. There was um, a line of his that I wrote down, which I think, because one of my notes was, I think Eustace just exists to state the obvious. What? Oh, there was something that he said, this is just after a shootout with the marshals and they realize, oh, we haven't got Briggs yet. And, um, and then um, he, sa- he says, um, if Colton Briggs is coming, you might as well set an extra plate at the table because Colton Briggs is coming. And I was like, oh, <laughs> God, use this. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong about any of that. But on the other hand, it's Clint Howard. And uh, he is part of this Western dynasty uh, his father, Rance Howard, is, uh, you know, and also the father of Ron Howard, but uh, Rance Howard is this, you know, longtime Western character actor. And Clint, I think, has done a lot of that, too, or certainly a lot of B-movies. I wonder, is, is he in any other of these uh, kind of lower tier cage movies? I, I, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me if he is. So I just feel like he's one of these character actors where it's just amusing to see him there and he had this giant beard for no reason. And I guess I was just kind of entertained by his, his existence, but you're, you're right about the exposition. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it would have been a much drier film uh, had Eustace not been in it. Um, I think my only other issue with Eustace, um, I don't know, he's he's obviously you can sort of tell from the dynamic of him and the henchman that he's sort of the butt of jokes. He's the one that they all look down upon. Um, I mean, obviously he's got again, he's got a good memory because he will remind you ad nauseum that the sheriffs are coming and that they are on the run and who Colton Briggs is and to set some tables out. Um, and again, I, you know, we don't know a lot of information. We sort of know bare bones information about the henchmen and we'll, we'll get onto them. Um, but during the shootout at the end, um, the fact that he got a shot on Briggs, even on a second view, and it was like bullshit. Absolutely <laughs> not. Absolutely not. And he's very proud of it. He goes immediately to brag that he got that shot. And then, of course, uh, the boss, uh, McAllister, is like, well, did you kill him? He's like, oh, wait, well, maybe not. (laughs) But I just (laughs) shot him and I had to run and tell you about it. I forgot (laughs) to kill him, I guess. (laughs) But I wonder, maybe I'm I'm giving the movie too much credit, but I think they, they dress Eustace in a Civil War soldier uniform the whole time. And so I wonder if he was meant to be like the civil war is over and he's just still wearing this all the time. I wonder if he was meant to be somehow like traumatized from his experience in the war. And that led him to be a little slow or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I suppose what we're really saying is here is if, uh, you know, the writers and directors, if you're listening, we need the Eustace prequel, um, (laughs) the Eustace way, um, (laughs) And I'm, you know, I'm talking money, big money, because he's going to look at things and he's going to tell you what they are. Um, but sort of that that aside, though, sort of um, obviously the opening sequence was about five minutes or so, quite a quick opening sequence, but it sort of sets um, sets the table. Obviously, bring an extra plate for Colton Briggs because he is coming. It's <laughs> it sets the scene for the things that are to come. Um, but how was this sort of scene for you? Did it sort of get across, um, I guess in part, what, what the film wanted to know is that Colton Briggs used to be this cold-blooded killer. Did it give you enough, I suppose, meat on the bone to sort of set up the events that were to come for the sort of remaining 85 minutes of this? I I mean, and maybe you having watched it twice felt differently, but I did not entirely follow the relationships in that scene i guess i can say <laughs> because it starts right this guy is is being hanged by a local not the sheriff i think right he's sort of like a local boss of some kind the guy who owns the yeah. town essentially and he's giving this long speech about how he's been wronged by this guy that he's about to hang and colton briggs and his mustache and he's kind of hanging back and glaring at this guy right so Colton Briggs has some sort of beef with this guy, the guy who's conducting the hanging, right? And owes him money, maybe. And so when they finally get to the point, they're gonna, they're, the guy is hanging. They move the the cart or whatever that he stands on, and he's he's hanging there. He's gonna die. And Colton Briggs jumps into action, kills the boss guy, gets some money, right, and yeah. then cuts the hanging guy down right does colton do it or someone else cuts him down the hanging guy there right uh i think it's because they say um well this is the thing because even on a second view i'm not <laughs> too sure how it all works who 
like the preacher slash mayor is or something of, of the town because he's giving that speech. Right. Um, from my guess is that he's, I suppose, like the hired muscle. He's basically the security to make sure the hanging goes without a hitch. Called or maybe or you might have also caught the. I don't know. He might. Yeah. Have, <laughs> I, I think he, he was caught like McAllister because he's obviously the guy's dad. So I think right, he's yes. caught him, and he's probably there to sort of see it through to the end, so he gets his money. But someone says, like, there's like a guy who's in it for like two seconds, and he says, "Oh, watch out! We think his brother's here," and I think it's his brother's gang. Cuts Who's brother? The guy who's getting this is what I mean. The guy <laughs> who's getting hung, his brother, um, has people with him to cut him down. Okay, I think that's what happened. Because um, my impression was, and this was why I sort of almost felt like McAllister, it was almost justified, or I don't know. So my impression was that Colton Briggs did not have a beef with McAllister. That his deal was the boss guy owed him money. And so he came in and he like goes in the store or the saloon or something and he grabs this money and he's like, ah, you, you, you owe me this money. And then the, the hanging guy has been cut down. He's reunited with his son, McAllister, who will later grow up to become the villain. They're all on the ground. And it seemed to me like Colton Briggs was leaving. He's like, I got my money. I'm out of here. And then McAllister, who was hanging, suddenly he grabs this shotgun and points it at Briggs for some reason. And then Briggs shoots him because McAllister was in like self-defense sort of, but gratuitously. So I don't know. It seemed almost like random. Like he would have left him alone if he hadn't been suddenly had a gun pointed at him. So I don't know, but maybe I'm misreading that entirely. I I think that's mostly, I think he says, um, because he's, he's, McAllister is being hung and his brother comes to cut him down. And I think in the front, in the, the ruckus, Briggs shoots his brother because he says, you shot my brother. And then he aims the gun at him. So he just kind of like 360 no-scopes him basically and uh, just takes him out. So then, Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. He does shoot. Briggs shoots the guy's brother. Yes. But he was like, was he the one who owed Briggs money though? The brother? <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, I, I've watched this twice and I still don't know. Yeah, so and I, the thing the thing about this scene is that there's no need for it to be this convoluted. Like, we could just not even have this scene and the movie would make sense, right? It's a very basic Western thing. The grown-up McAllister is like, you killed my dad, I'm not going to get you. And we already know that in his past, Briggs was this cold-blooded killer. We could have gotten rid of that opening scene entirely we would have lost the mustache but other than that i feel like it would have made the movie actually make more sense well i think this is these are the scales that we have to weigh here uh mustache versus logic and i know which one i'm tipping the scale towards every single time so um, i i absolutely agree with the filmmakers for their choices um but yeah i suppose obviously if McAllister hadn't been shot and then, you know, the, there wouldn't be much of a, a revenge story for us here. He would have trotted along on his merry old way with his his, his cash money. And, um, you know, I'm sure Briggs understood what was going on there. So that's, you know, maybe he was, he was this was the investment for his general store 20 years down the line. That's probably yeah. the best, best that I've got here. <laughs> I don't know. But I feel, yeah, I feel like 
they established the idea that Briggs is this killer who's presumably killed a bunch of people in, in his past. And so if someone from his past shows up and says, you killed my dad, I think as an audience, we'd be able to make that leap. Like, yeah, he probably killed a lot of people's dads. So we got it. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I don't know that, that definitely that scene to me, when I was watching it, I thought, oh, this is not a good sign for this movie because this scene is completely confusing. And then it really, the rest of it is really streamlined and straightforward. So I don't know why they couldn't convey things properly in that opening scene. Yeah, I think definitely on hindsight, there's a lot less convoluted ways to set up that Briggs is uh, the cold-blooded, um, looks through people, killer that you know everyone else tells us that he is uh, as the film progresses on. Um, and I think even if it had just been, it just started with him at the house with his wife. Um, Ruth, and it just went from there, shaved like the first five minutes off. I think it still would have worked and maybe made a bit more sense because I think in part with the start as well, obviously the main villain is, is the son of the, the shot man, Jimmy McAllister, who spent the best part of 20 years sort of plotting his revenge. Um, and you, you can understand why he wants his revenge, but I, I still... And I suppose talking about Jimmy McAllister here, uh, played by uh, Noah LeGrosse, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, reuniting him and Cage for the first time since a score to sell. A um, little bit of Cage connection for you. Um, I kind of couldn't help but wonder, like, if, you know, even now I'm thinking, oh, did I, did I sort of need, like, a bit more to justify, like, the 20 years of, like, vengeance and path that he's gone down? Because some of his... Um, I guess the whole arc of his character at times felt a little empty for me. And I think sometimes in the performance from Noah LeGrosse, it felt a little bit underwhelming because a lot of time for me, his performance was basically him just like smiling and going, oh, we're going to go do this thing. And that was basically 90% of his character for me. And even when he gets angry with his goons, he's just like, no, what you going to do in force? Um, did did his arc sort of work work more for you than it did for me? No, I think you're right. It's not a deep character there, and I, I mean, I don't think it has to be per se. He has very simple motivation: you killed my dad, I'm going to get you, right? And he has to be the villain. So even though you killed my dad and now I'm going to kill you is the motivation for like a lot of heroes in Westerns. Um, he has to be extra sadistic. So he kills Colton Briggs's wife really gratuitously or whatever. And he just seems excessively mean. And uh, in a way, maybe Eustace is there so we can show how he treats his goons poorly <laughs> because Eustace is, is the one who's heaped with all this abuse. Um, mm. so, I mean, I think it's okay. And I think that's the, the performance as that you're, that you're imitating there that Noah LeGrosse is trying to give as this, you know, jokery villain almost. And maybe he's just not up to it. You know, he's not an equal adversary for cage. We needed a bigger budget for this movie. So they could have hired a cage level actor to be his adversary and really be, you know, a worthy opponent. Yeah. Um, uh, a wild West face off, of, I think is, a. <laughs> I think is you know what the, the next logical step for all this face yes. off to put it in the wild west why not put it on space put it on what put it on the wild west on the moon I don't know do whatever you want um, 
all of it have robo horses. I don't even know how that works. Go I'm not into ask yeah. it. Have robo mustaches, robo handlebar <laughs> mustaches. I think I think this is the next big genre of the sci-fi western. Um, but yeah, like I said, no sort of issue with like Noah Legros as well. I just think, um, obviously, how this character has been written is just a little sort of keep sort of glues the, the goons together. Um, I don't know if for me I would have liked a bit more of just how this ragtag ragtag bunch sort of comes into it. I guess you know, obviously, God bless Eustace again. You get one sort of um, line when they're in the barn, sort of chasing Ruth at the start, when he's like, um, "Oh, they're going to throw us back in jail. The sheriff's going to catch up to us." So obviously, that line there is doing a lot of work to give you the background of sort of all these characters. So I assume he's just got a ragtag bunch and he's promised them all of this money um and all of these riches to go on this like revenge mission for him um and then like i said it's mostly just him just like smiling and then sort of quietly like i can see the performance he's i think what he's trying to do with the character and give this kind of like sinister undertone like he's not outright furious but just this sort of um underlying sort of passive aggression and I don't know if that's meant to be some kind of countenance to Briggs um, and obviously Brooke as well, because they deal with the whole, um, you know, sort of being on the spectrum in a time before that was a thing and not having emotion. So I don't know if this is meant to be some kind of like funhouse mirror to all of that. Um, I suppose one of the other things I didn't understand, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping towards the end here, when the big showdown is happening, um, he sort of sat down with... Brooke and he's sort of given the backstories like oh like your father killed my father there's a seed of him in me um he's the reason why all of this is happening but then he's kind of like I'm gonna kill your dad and then I'm gonna become your brother and then we're gonna be kin or something um I don't I don't know like maybe like the, maybe like the start for you uh, was missing something I was like did I miss something here is he gonna like adopt Briggs' daughter or, or something about vengeance? Yeah, I think that was weirdly... I don't think you missed something. I think that was exactly what he was saying, that he was going to kill Briggs and he was going to like make Brooke be part of his gang or something, and he was going to then raise her. Somehow this would be part of his revenge, that not only is he going to kill Briggs, but he's going to turn Briggs' daughter into one of his goons or something like that, yeah. I guess. Yeah, I like I. I remember the first time I watched it, I was kind of like, "Oh, maybe I'm, maybe I just missed something. Maybe I just missed something here." And he maybe he revealed part of his plan earlier, and I just kind of missed it. But on the second viewing, I was like, "Nope, didn't miss a thing. Nope, nope. That's just a weird thing that he said. That's just a weird, weird thing. He's a weird man. The only part of his plan he reveals is that he has a lock box full of, I think it's Mexican pesos. I think." Um, yeah that is like and, i know where to spend them in mexico <laughs> it's, it's a real hard spoilers. to figure that out yeah spoilers i think there is a scene where marshall jarrett sort of explains to briggs like you were saying that these guys uh, escaped from prison somehow and that in order to get the goons to go along with his revenge mission against briggs that McAllister has promised them this money that he has hidden away. 
And then they, which they think is like gold or something probably. And then that's why there's that scene where he shows them the money and they're like, what is this? And he says, oh, it's pesos where we can use them in Mexico, where we're going to go after we kill Briggs. So I guess that's sort of the plan. And that's also his way to keep them on the hook because they have to follow him to Mexico. Otherwise they can't spend the money because it's not American money and it's not gold. And so it can't be, it's, it's useless unless they go to Mexico. So that was kind of what I thought. And then again, skipping ahead to the very end, he's also double crossing them because there's the scene where he's talking to Brooke. He's taking the, the pesos and doing that bit where he puts one on top of a pile and then the rest of the pile is like a newspaper or whatever. So it looks like there's all the money. And then he's yes. putting the actual yep. money into like a saddlebag that he's going to steal and ride away with, with, with Brooke, I guess. And so she knows this so that at the end, when it appears that the money in the lockbox is destroyed and some random person at the very end is like, here's the saddlebag for some reason is like, here, here's your brother's saddlebag. <laughs> That's not really her brother. So that Brooke then at the end has all the money and no one else knows that she has the money. Everyone else thinks it was destroyed. Am I getting that right? I think so. I think so. So obviously, so skipping ahead to like the very end. Yeah, here, sorry, the, the I just spoiled shoot. the whole the very ending <laughs> of the movie. Yeah, I really need to make it. I've been doing this for over a hundred episodes. I really need to make it clear that there are spoilers in these in these episodes. Honestly, um, we'll fix it in post. <laughs> um, yeah, so obviously, right at the end, the big shootout has happened. Um, Wild West justice has been served, however, however you want to call it. And obviously, the marshal's talking to Brooke. And he's he's kind of explaining like, oh, there's two ways that your dad is going to be remembered here. Obviously, the, the good way or sort of the not good way. Um, and he's like, well, as far as I'm concerned, that uh, money just went missing; it never existed. So I was kind of thinking like, oh, you know, he's just given it. A, obviously, timers were different in the what, 1800s. I'm assuming the around that time. Um, and he's like, well, we'll clean up here. You, that little twelve year old girl, just. Just go right on back to your home with all these these Mexican pesos you can't use, um, because I'm sure you understand how currency works, um, and, and just pick up from where your dad left off and run his jelly bean store, um, and then it's just like end, and I'm like, I, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I did wonder about that too, because like you said, it's presented like the marshal is giving her this gift, like here you go, little girl, I'm gonna you know, write a report or whatever that says your dad was a hero who took down this outlaw and, you know, died in the, in the crossfire or whatever. And so you're free to go to walk back to your home, wherever the hell that is, however far away it is. Hopefully you know where it is. And like you said, yeah, what run the store that's just been sitting there. And that guy from the beginning of the movie is going to come in and steal all the jelly beans, right. That he kept trying to shoplift. Um, it does seem like she's not in a great position, even though she has those, those pesos, which they make a big point of saying she can't spend in the U S. So unless she's going to walk to Mexico and start a general store in a town in Mexico, she does seem a little screwed there at the end. Yeah. I, I suppose the, uh, the epilogue to that is that she starts America's first currency exchange bureau. Um, I guess it is, is the only way that will ultimately make sense for me. Um, but yeah, I kind of think she's she's it, it, like even now I'm like, what are you thinking, Sheriff? You're you're sort of one of the only voices of reason that this movie has. 
And then at the end, um, you you just lose yourself to madness. I don't know, because I'm going to put it down to perhaps the trauma of him losing his entire squadron of men um, in the hills in that shootout, but it makes no, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And I was like, okay, like I'm with it up until now. And, you know, like the film has my attention and stuff. And then the more I think about the ending, I'm just like, I don't, I don't understand what he's expecting her to go and do. Because like I said, the guy, what's his name? Is it, it, Mr. Jeffries? I think his name is, um, who, who the, goes the, to the store. The customer? Yes. In the beginning? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's Mr. Jeffries um, sort of comes in and obviously he's a bit of a, he's one sort of the more comedic characters outside of Eustace. He comes in saying um, uh, they build a, they built like an outhouse uh, on the orchard and all the apples taste of shit and mama can't make an apple pie for um, the potluck. Um, and they're going to go get some flour and then he's got his dirty hands all on the jelly beans. Um, and I think I enjoyed Mr. Jeffries more in a second viewing as well. I think if we do the expanded old way universe, I want the Eustace way, the Jeffries way. I want I want to see the spat of this apple orchard and the shit apples. Um, and I think obviously the purpose of that scene, I think, is to, um, I suppose, establish a bit more. I think one of the big things, obviously, as we've touched on already, that with, with Colton Briggs and with uh, Brooke is that there's... Um, and I think certainly has as director Brett Donner, who has sort of alluded to in interviews as well, that um, these are two characters who are very much on the spectrum of autism, um, and uh, you know, definitely, um, you know, sort of deal with it in a time when you know that's obviously not a thing. Uh, you don't you don't talk about that kind of thing, and um, when she's sort of separating the jelly beans as well. I think to this point, she's been a bit sort of not cold, but quite sort of direct in her like responses to him as well. And questioning like, Oh, why aren't we taking the horse? Why aren't we doing this? Like, what am I supposed to do now? Um, and I think from, from that point onwards, uh, I, I think the biggest selling point in the film outside of the first traditional Western of cage is the relationship between Briggs and Brooke, I think some of the most magic moments of the movie are in the fireside chats that they have. Um, the relationship as it sort of progressed through the film, how was, um, how did you sort of find that and how that's sort of progressed and evolved as well? Yeah, that was great. And I think we've, we spent all this time like picking apart the plot and which is, which is deserved because there are, there are definitely some questionable choices there, but really the relationship between the two of them is the heart of the movie and I think what makes the movie work. And, you know, we're talking about Noah LaGrosse and maybe he's not quite up to going toe to toe with Cage and, and Ryan Kira Armstrong, who plays Brooke, she really is. She's excellent in this film and, and even steals it from Cage, I think at times, uh, if that's yeah. not blasphemy to say on this podcast. <laughs> you get um, one, I'll allow it. <laughs> all right, thank you. But um, yeah, and, and there is that, the best scene in the movie when he kind of finally opens up to her and talks about his past and how he's never 
he never felt emotions or anything like that until he met her mother. Um, that's a great moment for Cage. That's the best acting moment, I think, for him in this in this movie. And 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 she matches him really well. And I liked that, you know, I think one thing that you do expect in this kind of movie is that if you have the character who's this kind of taciturn, lone gunslinger, he's cold-blooded, and he teams up with this like spunky young girl, maybe you, you expect that she's going to be, she's going to bring him out of his shell and she's going to be all perky and outgoing or whatever. And it's the opposite of that. She's just like him. She's also sort of cold blooded and she's very direct and she can be a bit uh, withdrawn as well. And like you said, that this is the way that they're showing that these are both characters who are kind of on the autism spectrum. So, but I really liked their relationship and I liked that at the beginning you think, what are you doing, Colton Briggs, bringing your daughter, your 12-year-old daughter on this revenge mission? Like, that's a bad idea and you're putting her in danger. But she proves to be immediately resourceful. And the 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 really, I think, kind of great, maybe the best filmmaking moment is when he's trying to teach her how to shoot and she's shooting with the shotgun and she can't quite get it. And she says, um, how about you let me try with the pistol? And they've got this hat like set as her target. And once she asks for the pistol, they just cut to the shot of them riding away afterwards. And she's wearing the hat with the two bullet holes in it. And it gives you that sense. She she was good with that pistol. She hit it right away. And I loved that moment where they didn't have to lay it all out in, you know, sort of very obvious fashion, but you get it. And so I, I really liked her in this movie. I really liked their relationship. And that to me was the best thing going here. Absolutely, and I think to echo your um, uh, sentiments on sort of the, the, the shooting and the, the target practice scene as well. When it sort of cuts to the holes in the hat, and I was like, "That's excellent. That's really like I really, really enjoyed that." Yeah, um, and and I think um, you know if the film had you know had been able to focus more on the, that sort of relationship, like a, a cross country relationship, whilst searching for the man that sort of killed the mother and the wife then uh, i think there's you know, a lot of fertile ground to be there as well and uh you know a lot of comedic moments between the two of them the one that um outside of that that stands up for me is when they're sort of figuring out the plan of how to get a second horse and um one of the injured sheriffs comes along and cage is like um like uh, you're gonna need to cry and she's like oh well like i I, I don't know how to cry. Uh, and then he goes, I oh, remember we were at the, uh, the pastors and everyone was crying. He was going like, oh, why? Oh, why, my baby? And she's going, oh, okay, I'll try that. Oh, where? Oh, where? My baby. And I was like, that was, you know, genuinely really funny stuff. Um, and sort of the payoff later when uh, they've got the sheriff tied up and um, she's got the gun to one of them and she's like, Oh, like uh, the chef's like, oh, I'm gonna blow, I'm gonna shoot through your door, I'm gonna blow her brains all over like the rocks here. And she steps on his injured leg, and he starts howling, and she goes, oh, I'm gonna cry like that next time. Um, and again, I think as you said, with um, her performance as well, certainly from um, uh, Ryan Kira Armstrong, you know, it's. And I've sort of said this on the podcast before, for better or worse, not many people can always go toe-to-toe with Cage because he has such a presence in charisma. But um, in some respects, you know, arguably, this is very much Armstrong's movie as well. 
um they have like a great chemistry together and um I'm not sure how much she's been in before this. I think Firestarter was one she's been in. Not seen it myself, but I thought she's excellent. This is very much a a movie to say, I'm here. Um, you, you know, Hollywood's hire me for all of your things. Yeah, I did see Firestarter, which is not good. And <laughs> um, not I, I was surprised um, to realize that it was her because I, I had seen that movie and yet I did not recognize her from it um, at all. And that was a very forgettable movie. And I don't think she was bad in it. Obviously she's really the main star. I mean, if you know the story of Firestarter, if you've seen the original, she's the kid with the powers to, to start fires and she's telekinetic and whatever. And Zac Efron is her dad who's trying to protect her. And it's definitely the, the two of them, but, um, I don't rem- didn't remember her giving a, a good or bad performance necessarily in that film. And not that she necessarily had a great rapport with Zac Efron as her dad. I think she's got a much better rapport with Nicolas Cage. So even though this movie hasn't gotten the best reviews, I think this is a much better showcase for her than Firestarter was, while that was maybe a little more high profile because of the whole Stephen King connection. Yeah, certainly. Like... Like the, I think I would agree if, if nothing else comes out of this movie and, you know, who knows what will happen in a year or five, ten years or whatever. Um, I think this is very much the movie that you present to people and say, you know, Ryan Keir Armstrong, based on this performance, could well be one of the, you know, in a few years now, one of the, the future big talents. Um, because I think, she, I don't know how old she was when this, I think this was filmed during COVID, so two years ago, so probably... Um, She's playing 12 years old. I don't know how old she was when she filmed this, but I was like, that's um, actually offensive to be that this good at acting. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm I'm no actor. I, I did drama in school and I passed barely because I did a Scottish accent. Yes, saps. Um, <laughs> but I was like, this, you know, incredible performance. And um, for Cage as well, you know, it's a very uh, a, a muted, almost... Not, I think, not quite to the level of, but I think for me, echoed sort of his sort of uh, pig kind of Joe performances, a lot more quiet, a lot more grounded, um, hit the emotional beats when he needed to. I think this is kind of like a script that he could very much sleepwalk through. Um, you know, sort of no discredit to sort of, you know necessarily anyone else in the film or anything, but um, Cage sort of definitely did what he needed to do. Part of me wanted wanted him to be a bit more. I don't know. Um, maybe because I'm, I'm too recently from finishing God of War Ragnarok and the whole father-son dynamic in that and sort of battle this whole thing of who I used to be. Um, I guess, was there anything in the... Maybe not even so much in, in uh, Cage's performance, but the arc of Colton Briggs, that did it sort of work for you as well? Um, anything you would have changed or would have hit a bit more for you? I mean, I, I liked it. I, I liked both his performance and the arc of the character. Um, I, I liked that it was subdued and that I think people maybe who are not cage experts as much expect these big, crazy freak out moments from him. And I think there might have been one part where he kind of raised his voice and, and did a little bit of that. But for the most part, he's very subdued. And I thought it was really effective. Again, that that campfire scene where he finally opens up and he gives that long monologue about his lack of feelings and what it was like for him growing up was really affecting and, and well done and not overdone in any way. So 
I liked that. And I thought the arc of his character, again, another, another movie of this type might've had a more exaggerated arc where he's really cold and really hard at the beginning. And then he becomes this big softy by the end. And I, I, I think this was a much more, a subtle version of that, that he does bond more with his child by the end. We get the impression at the beginning when he's just asked to like walk her to school and he's like, what? I don't walk school. What are these things? (laughs) Um, And, and by the end, obviously they have more of a bond, but it's not, it's not overly sappy or sentimental. And he sacrifices himself for her again, spoiler at the end there. Um, so I, I, I thought that worked really well. And and while you might have been wondering at parts of the plot, like, how does this follow from this? I feel like the relationship between the two of them was always very clear and was always very engaging. So I like this. And like, like you said, too, I think this is easily a movie that Cage could have coasted through. It's not a complex, artistically ambitious film. And... As I'm sure you talked about on many, many episodes, one thing that Cage doesn't do is sleepwalk through any of these movies, no matter how bad the script is, no matter how terrible his character is written. And there are so many of these actors like him. You know, you were talking about Face Off, like John Travolta or John Malkovich or Robert De Niro, or I mean, not to mention, you know, Bruce Willis had his own issues, but a lot of these actors who get cast in these B movies. They do sleepwalk through it because they don't care and they just want to get paid. And fair enough, they deserve to be paid. But Cage is always giving it everything. And I guarantee that he thought through who is this person? How do I convey who this person is in this performance? And it elevates the movie. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is kind of the um, very much the Cajun drum that I will bang and bang until I'm blue in the face. Um is that with all the movies, obviously, you know, there's been the the time or perception that he'll just take anything. And some people probably think like, oh, someone said that Cage gets to wear a handlebar mustache. He probably didn't even read the script and he took it. <laughs> um, but he, he puts a lot more consideration into the films that he picks up than I think anyone really gives him credit for. Uh, shy for the people who thinks it's, think it's a good idea to watch all of his movies and document them on a podcast. Um but, but even this, I think now he's a lot more selective in his movies. He will probably give something more to, you know, what kind of character can I offer something? Who's got, can I give my life experience to? It was, I think, the same for sort of uh, the character of Red in Mandy with uh, uh, Chef Robin in Pig. Um, you know, and there's, there's, I think a lot of movies now where I'm just like, I don't know that anyone but Cage could have necessarily pull this off and um as you said sort of the conversation that he has with brooke around the uh around the fire when he's saying you know when i was young um you know i thought i was kind of like uh, dead inside i didn't i had to like pretend to be how all the other people were um it was like i didn't laugh or cry as a baby i didn't sort of cry when my mother died um, he never felt fear. He could recognize it in other people and use it against other people, which I think is, you know, probably a, uh, as much as we get for, you know, the cold bloody killer that we, we are told he is. Um, and then to sort of go in and say the only time, I think a very affecting line, the only time I felt fear was when I met your mother, because for the first time I felt the fear of losing love, the fear of, um, 
uh, that being taken away from me. Um, and I think a lot of that to his character, I think, or sort of the way that I sort of perceived it was that he has kind of the same perception with Brooke. And that's why, especially in the first half of the film, that's why he's almost a bit sort of blunt and standoffish with her as they kind of are with each other. He kind of puts her at, at a distance because he doesn't want to lose her. Um, obviously, that's, you know, when he's, I think, momentarily wracked by uh, grief and vengeance in the wake of losing Ruth. And there's a, there's a moment there where he's about to shoot his daughter in the face. Um, I mean, I, I, I certainly want to sort of pick up on that point. Um, but but other than that, I think we get a lot of sort of context for him. And obviously, going back to that scene, because this is one of the more... Um, and again, I will, I will stress that I, I did enjoy the character of Marshall Jarrett, but he sort of sat on the porch with Brooke um, whilst Briggs is digging the grave for his wife and then he in a very sort of useless way and i think again one of my sort of issues with the film is kind of the over explanation of a lot of stuff in the script um he, he's basically telling brooke about his dad and he's like he was the meanest son of a bitch i ever met he was a violent man he's not what i would call a good man um and it's like okay i get the point you've explained three times the same different thing um and then he's like, um, I think even the second time I kind of tuned out a little bit, but he's like, a, a, long story short, as long as your daughter is alive, there's no room in your life for vengeance. Let us do our job. And then Briggs is in the house sort of loading his gun. He's like, as long as she is alive. And then he aims at her and Brooke is like, mama wouldn't like you shooting, well, pointing that gun at me. Um, I was like, a bit of an odd scene. I can sort of kind of reach and justify why it's happened. How how was that kind of... Because that one felt... A, even on the second thing, it felt a little odd for me. How did that sort of uh, scene sort of work for you? Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely off. I, I thought this is a guy that we are supposed to sympathize with. I mean, maybe he, he was a cold-blooded killer, but now... He's not. And he loved his wife. We can see that he loved his wife this much. I mean, that's why he's consumed with this need for revenge. And and I think, like you said, he he does love his daughter. Maybe he doesn't quite understand how to express it at first or how to relate to her at first, but he does love her. So the fact that he would even consider this, that that the sort of logic in his mind would be like, oh, well, if she's in my life, I can't avenge my wife. Therefore, I must kill her is is yeah it it felt off to me and it wasn't the great greatest starting point for them to have this trip where they bond and you know he doesn't shoot her and maybe you could say that he's so um confused or he's he's consumed with this grief that he does something that he doesn't really mean or whatever and he wouldn't have even if she hadn't woken up and said uh mom would not like you to point a gun at me he wouldn't have actually done it, but it is a little odd. I think they were trying to get the the cold-bloodedness, the emotionlessness of him across there, but maybe they went a little too far with it in that moment. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's one they, a scene they don't really reference again after that, and I think it's, um, uh, yeah, I, I can sort, again, sort of understand why they did it. It's one of the few scenes that sort of felt a little off for me. Um, but then they, 
obviously they progress and they have their journey and uh, they learn that they're a lot more alike than they first anticipated. Um, and sort of eventually it all comes to, um, I think, I think they're in, is it Santa Rosa? I think they go to, I, I assume because of the pesos, it's a, uh, a, a town on or close to the border. Well, they say it's in, and, and I, you know, I don't know how much, you know, us geography, but they say it's in Colorado, which is not anywhere close to the border. I mean, I will have to take your word on that. I just, I, I, not a clue. If it's pesos, I'm just assuming it's right. No, that would make sense. But I'm pretty sure they say he's gone to this town and it's in Colorado. And if that's if I'm right about that, Colorado is not anywhere near the Mexican border. So, and they could have easily had it be in like Arizona or New Mexico or something, which are common settings for westerns and are near the the Mexican border. So, and I think they shot it in. Well, no, I think they shot it in Montana, which is also not near Mexico. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It is. It is another plot point that's maybe a little muddled there but i'm pretty sure that it's not near the mexican border that if in fact the McAllister's plan has succeeded and he had killed i mean i guess it does sort of succeed as he uh says there at the end but if he had survived it and he had then taken his pesos he would have had to travel quite a long way to get to mexico i think (laughs) I mean, I can only assume that they're in the right area because Eustace didn't say anything about it. Right. So. <laughs> he, he's <laughs> your guide through American geography in this film. <laughs> it's, I feel like I know I know more about America now through the eyes of Eustace. <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, why we must have a Eustace prequel, the Eustace way. Um, obviously, by the point they get to the showdown at the end, they've, um, I suppose, set up, set up uh, a ambush they've got uh they've hired some extra goons uh to sort of help out um i think i think again aside from the point i raised earlier that i still don't buy eustace being able to even clip uh colton briggs um i guess in terms of like this the the set pieces and the action um how did sort of the final showdown um Sort of from Briggs, sort of riding into town with like the distraction horse technique and just appearing out of building, stabbing Big Mike in the back, to the point where it's the um, the oh my god they said the title part the old way st- uh, standoff with him and McAllister. Um, how did so- all that sort of work for you? Yeah, I liked all that actually. Um, I mean, you're waiting obviously throughout the movie. There's a there's a good shootout in the middle of the movie between the marshal and his men and McAllister and his men in that like Canyon, which is a very, very uh, common Western setting for shootouts. That whole setup there is very, very familiar as is the showdown in the town. Um, So I think you come into a movie like this, expecting those kinds of scenes. And I think they deliver that, that Brett Donahue is not trying to do something too elaborate that he doesn't have the resources to pull off that it's pretty basic simple, straightforward action that you can follow. And I liked that. And of course, the movie has to end with Briggs and McAllister facing off in the main street of the town. I mean, that's how a Western ends. So that's what you got to have. <laughs> and so I, I liked all that. Again, I think by the time we got to that point, I thought this is doing exactly what it needs to do to be this kind of movie. I'm satisfied with it. And we've set up the idea that Briggs is dangerous and I believed that he could take out all these goons basically on his own. And But Eustace gets his little 
dig in there so that he doesn't so that Briggs doesn't seem like he's some sort of uh, invincible soup invincible superhero or whatever so yeah I liked I liked the action I thought it was effective did you did you agree yeah I think I certainly agree in the sense of I think it had done enough that I did buy that Briggs could take them all out um again I know this is the third time I've said it but Eustace has no business with a gun as much as I love Eustace, he's got no business with the gun. There was one shot that I enjoyed, and I don't think they did it intentionally, um, where Eustace comes back and is like, oh, I got him. And he's like, did you get him? He's like, oh, well, no, I just clipped him. And like, okay, well, where is he? Always oh, hold up in that building back there. He's like, do you think that Briggs is the kind of person who just holds himself up in a building? And he's like, oh, well, it's like, oh, well, I guess we'll see. Then he goes to say something else. And then the canister just puts his gun to his head and he goes, Eustace. And then it like cuts to uh, Briggs in like a store. And that made me laugh. Like, I don't think it was an intentional comedy, but the way to read that, I read that scene, it was like McAllister's just had enough of Eustace's shit by this point. And he was just going to shoot him in the head. But then that conversation continues. I was like, oh, okay, we've just kind of inserted like a little five second thing here. But um yeah, I think that was one of my uh, my high points. I I I liked the sort of the end scene though. I think it's um, it didn't have to be exactly John Wick or anything. It didn't have to be um, cage like judo throwing people and breaking arms. I think maybe we'd have one more good old someone being thrown through a saloon window just for <laughs> ye olde western effects would have been lovely. But you know you can't have it all. Um, but it yeah it, it did the job. I think. Right at the start, where he stabbed Big Mike in the back and just slits his throat, takes out the other guy. I think his name is Boots. I think he was goon number four. I think it was McAllister, Eustace, Big Mike, and Boots. Yeah, um, that sounds right. Shiloh Fernandez, who gets a big like and credit, like he's a big deal that he's in this movie and he does a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> yeah, you know, if, you know, if he can, uh, if he can get the work, by by all means. Um, but yeah, I I think it's. You know, it was completely sort of serviceable, like end gun fight. It's like, yeah, it feels like Western enough. I think it does enough to sort of justify how we got here. Um, and then they get sort of the um, the standoff at the end, where it's like, you can either shoot me, and Eustace will shoot your daughter, or we can shoot Eustace, and I'll shoot you. And I think it's again, as we said right at the start, it's telegraphed enough that you like, you know, that Briggs is going to die. Um, and I think certainly confirmed by the point where Brooke learns how to use a pistol, I already thought, like, I, I have no doubt in my mind that she's going to be the one to shoot McAllister. Um, so it kind of it hit all the beats that I was expecting to, to hit. But at the same time, I was kind of like, again, as I said at the start, just because it's predictable doesn't mean it's necessarily bad. Um, I think... If it again, if it just wasn't for that confusing, what happens immediately after this film ends to Brooke, then I'd be a lot more satisfied with it. Um, and I think it's, I think, yeah, I, I think those are like my three sort of big um issues. You know, S- some of the the dialogue is very sort of bare bones and over explanatory. The beginning, as we've established, we still don't really know what happened. And like the last two minutes of the film are like, oh, God, wait, what? Um, I think other than that, there's a decent enough film and serviceable film in here. But I suppose ultimately for you, sort of 
you know, including the points we've discussed from start to finish, by the time the credits are rolling, um, were you sort of satisfied with the old way, uh, Buff, um, Butcher's Crossing aside, are you um, eager for more Cowboy Cage? Yeah, I was. I mean, I went into this movie thinking this is not going to be very good, that this is going to be, obviously this is back in the B-movie mode, and I've seen a few of those, not as many as you have, but the best I can hope for is that Cage is doing his best with this movie that isn't up to his standards. And so I was pleasantly surprised that there was a lot of other stuff in the movie that was as good as his performance, especially Ryan Keir Armstrong. And I think serviceable is the right word for it. It's not going to be on anyone's top 10 list of Cage movies or of movies from 2023 or of Westerns or of anything like that. But if you, if you like Cage, you're going to get some good Cage stuff in this movie. If you like sort of straightforward Westerns. This is a decent addition to that canon. And um, the plot holes aside, um, I feel like it does mostly work. And as much as we're complaining about the ending, I liked that it had this old school thing of like, the story's over, so the movie's over. We don't need an epilogue to tie up every loose end and find out what happened, you know, another 20 years later where Brooke is all grown up and running the general store. Like, would that really have added anything to the movie? I don't think so. So I appreciate that. Um, Like you said, I'm with you when I see a movie and it's 90 minutes. I'm like, yes, thank you for making this. (laughs) If it was 85 minutes, I'd be ecstatic. So I appreciate the efficiency of that. Like the story has ended. We've 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 killed the the bad guy. We've sacrificed the hero. What more do we need? Roll credits. It's over. So yeah, overall, I, I did like it. Yeah, I think you can't say fairer than that. It's um, and I think holding my hands up as well. Um, I think I enjoyed the trailer when it dropped out of nowhere, but then there was part of me thinking like, my God, I've been fooled by trailers before, <laughs> and I think like, oh. It's, yeah, you know, and I hate that god old argument saying, oh, they've shown, shown the whole movie in the trailer. Um, I think, oh, have we seen like the best bits and all the gunslinging in this trailer? But um, again, on repeat viewing, I think it holds up. I've enjoyed it more in a second viewing. It's definitely changed my opinion. Like I said at the top, if I'd come into this and I'd only watched it once, I think my opinion would be very different than what it is now. Um, and again, is it going to go down as... Uh, you know, the top 2023 movies or Westerns, as you've said, probably not. Um, it's obviously much better than a lot of the 2010 straight to DVD fare that Cage was, you know, part of. Um, and like, I, I was there. That was the old way for me. Um, <laughs> and I think in some respects, um, you know, Cage has got, certainly at this point, at the point of recording, January 2023, um, you know, it's the, the, the cage renaissance, as a lot of people are, are, are calling it. There's a lot of goodwill for cage. So my fear is I think some people are going to go into this and maybe lose faith a little bit. But I think, you know, just going inspecting just an old root and tooting sort of classic Western, you know, it does what it needs to do. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. Um, and it's a, it, it's a decent... 90 minutes like we say we can move the plot holes aside could it have shaved five minutes or so 10 minutes here and there for a tight story probably um but i think you know this is a good fun movie overall brett donahue i think it did a really good job um and you know it absolutely wets my whistle for more uh 
more Western Cage, um, you know, and wherever it, whenever it comes out, be it this year or God knows whenever at this point, uh, roll on Butcher's Crossing, uh, I say. Yeah, um, I agree. I think he fits really well in this genre and even more. I'm, I'm all for it. And I'm always happy this is a genre that like we don't see very much of anymore. So whenever there is a Western, regardless of who's in it, it's, it's kind of a cool event. So if Cage can make that happen, I think that's wonderful. Wonderful. I think sort of um, as Cage said himself now, um, when the movie was announced in 2021, by this point now, 45 years in cinema, only now coming to the Western, um, you know, the full fledged Western again. It's one of those like, um, you know, how have we how have we not crossed this bridge before? I think he's a good fit for the Western. Um, I think, you know, at this point, he's just a good, a good fit for horror as well. I know he himself, he says he's not the biggest horror fan but i said you know if if this was a different generation i think we would be considering him as one of the hammer horror stars if he was born in a different time a hundred years ago but god bless he's in this timeline with us the old way showing us the new way uh, a new way of cage um and certainly on that bombshell i think it brings us to the end of this episode the inaugural episode of 2023 uh leaves me to say uh, Josh Bell, thank you once again for returning to the podcast. A pleasure to have you on, and I suppose I hand it to you now for yourself. Uh, you know your final thoughts on the old old way and uh, where we can find you on the socials and that such good stuff. Oh yes, well yeah, I think I've offered all all my thoughts here. My final thoughts are a pleasant surprise. I'm glad that I saw it, and I look forward to more Cage westerns, Butcher's Crossing, and beyond. So uh, I'm happy that this turned out well, because it might not have. So that's, that's my thought on that. Uh, if you want to check me out, I, I am the co-host of Awesome Movie Year. We have uh, recently are about to come to the end of our season on the films of 1953. Speaking of a time when there were more Westerns, although I don't think we talked about a Western, but um, check out awesome yourself movie. as a sham. Right. right the there we go. I think we need to do a special episode or something, <laughs> but uh, check out awesome movie Awesome movie year on Facebook and Instagram and awesome movie pod on Twitter. And if you want to check me out, I am at Josh bell hates everything.com. There's not a whole lot there, really, but uh, Josh Bell hates everything <laughs> on Facebook at Signal Bleed on Twitter and at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd, where I do post more things. So that is all the things where you can find me. Wonderful stuff. All the links in the description as ever. But with that, that wraps up the old way 2023 off to a yeehaw and start back on the saddle, riding into that glorious Cajun sunset. Uh, and now we wait on, I assume, Renfield next, unless um, something else drops or the retirement plan, the film that definitely doesn't exist. If we'll, we'll see which Cage film drops next. But thank you for returning. Thank you for joining. Pleasure as always. We'll see you in the next one. And as ever, keep on, keep on Cajun. It's all you have to do. Thank you very much. Take care and goodbye. Yeah.